The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. Another week, another set of your questions. Keep them coming. Everyone, welcome to Retire with Style. I'm Wade, and I'm joined by my co-host Alex, and we're ready for another episode going down the path of answering your questions on a number of different topics. We're, I think we're episode seven into this series on the Q and A. It was originally going to be one live episode, but thank you so much for all the questions. We're we're continuing to move forward. And Alex, today we're going to be talking more about the RISA and, and allocation-related questions. So I think you have a lot more to say when it comes to answering some of these. You'll finally get your opportunity to shine. And Are you saying I don't have a lot yeah, more to say in the other ones? Is that is that is that so your amazing <laughs> talents? <laughs> yes. Yes. This is recorded, so I'll be juggling live. Everyone can see me juggle at the same time <laughs> while I'm answering these. So it's amazing. It's an amazing and, thing. And you know, this is the, uh, I went to Ikea the other day and they had these nice, clear picture shelves. So if anyone's watching on YouTube, this is the first one where my books are no longer sitting on the table behind me. They're actually poised nicely on the wall there. So it looks good. <laughs> nice. Are you sure it's not, you didn't take that from your bathroom? Is it like a shampoo rack <laughs> that you put against the wall? Yeah, you're just putting your books inside of it? It's not actually wood. I guess it could work in the shower too. <laughs> But no, that's not breaking. No, it's nice. You used to have them like behind your, yeah, like a so desk, a little right? Table you used to have something behind me. And they were sitting right on the table. It's it's perched perfectly my over shoulder. your it's right like hand the, shoulder. Sitting on my shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> you need books on the other side, though. It looks like it's oh, missing something. It yeah, wants need something. A, it's like the angel and the devil. No, on no, a symmetry. A symmetry, a symmetry works. Yeah, you should put your books on that side, and on the other side, you put all of Dave Ramsey's <laughs> and. Uh, Oh, there you go. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Money maker. And you, you, your, your head should, should like swivel relative to what direction the answer is going in. All right. All right. All, all right. right. All right. Let's get, let's get to it. Other than how's your push-up journey coming along yeah. or, or pull-up? What do you I buy, man? Four, one. I don't know if I said that in the last episode, but yeah. I'm able to do yeah, four yeah. at a time now. Okay. There you go, man. Do the do the deadlift. That yeah, mean the yeah, dead hang. The dead hang. Every time I tell you, I also have to lift my knees to be able to do that, and it's just not. The thing. And you can bend them. What That's the hell, man? <laughs> oh my god! Or all right, fine. Bend them and get like core work at the same time. <laughs> Jesus, come on, man. All right. Well, all I'll, right. I'll read the first question today because, like we noted, you're gonna have a lot more input into these. So, Alex, question number one. How do you recommend reconciling portfolio structure when one spouse has clear safety first orientation and the other spouse is a clear total return orientation? So it's kind of, you got a total return, RISA, of course, retirement income style awareness, total returns for one spouse, income protection for the other spouse. What do you do? Well, you can just check episode 103. (laughs) We did have a whole episode where we covered all six of the combinations of retirement income styles. You want to add a little more color to that? Are you good? (laughs) (laughs) You see how the table, how the turntables, the table from the office. One word answers here. (laughs) Yeah, how the tables turn. How the tables turn. Check episode 103. (laughs) Now you know how I feel, wait. <laughs> no, no, I'm teasing. Uh, yeah, and on, on 103, we we go over this quite a bit. We go through every iteration where total return, uh, risk wrap, total return, income protection, total return, time segmentation, and we just go around the whole carousel, if you will. But uh, a couple things I would say is that right off the bat, when one spouse has a clear safety first orientation and the other spouse has a clear total return. Just to reiterate, there's two factors here. 
that determine strategy. So if you just say safety first, it could be safety first with optionality, which is time segmentation. And that's very different than safety first and commitment orientation, which is income protection. So I, I get it, shorthand, hey, safety first, and this, but it is, it's, a, it's, it's more nuanced than that, not because we want it to, but because it just is, right? And so with that being said, if you're looking here, uh, safety first, but that other spouse wants more of a bucketing time segmentation approach, then effectively there's a couple of ways to go around that. I mean, begin with, think about what uh, bucketing is. Ultimately, bucketing is really setting aside assets on a temporal basis, some sort of time zone, if you want, some sort of timeline that you have so you can alloc- so you can earmark it for essential expenses that are more immediate in nature. What's immediate? You know, that just depends on your timeline. It could be one year, it could be three years, it could be five years, it could be six years, effectively, right? But ultimately, while you're doing that bucket, the rest of your assets are in the market, right? Or And the market being stocks and bonds, but those bonds are maybe more for portfolio volatility as opposed to your drawing income, right? And so you're betting on any, you're already betting on the market to be able to increase in value, you know, beyond the bucket, beyond the bucket time zone, so they can then refill those buckets as you use them up. So to some extent, there is some sort of interplay already between time segmentation and total return. It's just in time segmentation, you're, you're, you're earmarking assets to be able to address shorter term needs. And those assets are usually in some sort of dividend kind of producing things where government bonds, but you're not considering that as part of your allocation for all intended purposes, because if you're laddering, you're using the dividends and you're using the, the principal once it comes due. That's another key piece of, of bond ladders that I think people need to realize that you're not just relying on dividends, you're relying on the dividends, but you're also budgeting for, for what's it called? For the principal replacement. Okay. Cause you're not going to be able to just live off. Oh, maybe now interest rates have gone up, but you know, before it was like, what are you going to do with half a percent a year of, of dividends? Just not going to cut it. So there's already some sort of balance there. Now, if that, if one of the spouses was time segmentation and the other spouse was a uh, total return, I would drill down into liquidity preferences. And what I mean by that is that there's, there's, two, there's two major risks in retirement that, that we've seen that are different than when you're accumulating. One is longevity, and that doesn't play as much here. That plays more in the next one, and I'll, I'll, I'll have you know Wade can chime in on that one. But the one that we're looking at here between time segmentation, which is, again, safety first but with optionality, and total return, which is probability-based with optionality, is you're looking at liquidity. How important is that to the couple? You know, how is that risk? How, how much of a salient risk factor is that for you? And liquidity is like shorthand for spending shocks. Spending shocks could be both normal, I have to replace a roof all of a sudden, or a lot of times healthcare needs. A, a chronic illness was just, you were just diagnosed with a chronic illness, and now, you know, new things happen, right? And so based on your sensitivity to, to in, in my estimation, based on your sensitivity towards that liquidity risk, if you have high, if both of them kind of have high, then I would tilt more towards maybe having that bond ladder run a little longer. Or it could be MIGAS too. It doesn't have to be a bond ladder, but having that time segmentation approach last a little longer as opposed to three years, maybe make it seven, right? So you have a little bit more of a middle ground between the two. If that's not a salient, then maybe squeeze that bond ladder a little bit just for essential expenses for two to three years. Again, I'm just spitballing here to some extent, but that's the directionally, that's how I would be looking at it in terms of finding a middle ground. Now, if you meant safety first with commitment orientation, which is more severe, maybe a strong word, but more uh, dedicated to safety first and locking it in, Forever and ever, and that kind probably of thing. Is what they meant. Then wait, uh, I, <laughs> I'm assuming. Okay, because yeah, it mixed a, a factor with a, a quadrant, but uh, I, I'm assuming they didn't. But it's good for it, it, it's good in general, just to, to kind of reiterate that, so everyone hears it as well. Wait, why don't you take it away? Since I've spoken okay, yeah, for a while, yeah, so now we're about, talking about the the two. It, this would be the most common combination that you have: total return and income protection. So total return was probability based and optionality. 
income protection and safety first and commitment orientation. And yeah, there, there's a number of different potential options there. The, uh, the first would just be, in a way, I think of income protection almost like a, a kind of total returns approach. With total returns, you still have some reliable income, including Social Security and so forth. It's just you don't really worry about filling your gap. With income protection, you want all your basics covered with reliable income. But then once you have that in place, you can really frame the remainder as, okay, this is my total return portfolio for uh, lifestyle type goals. I can have more flexibility with that. I can now invest that more aggressively. And so just a basic income protection approach framed properly might actually appeal to both the total return and, or at least be palatable to the total return while also appealing to the income protection. Uh, With that as well, that sort of walking down that path thinking about the annuities as part of the bond allocation so that the total return individuals not necessarily have just having to sacrifice stock market potential upside gains to be able to create that floor. It's drawing from the bonds, not from the stocks. Just thinking about a QLAC, a qualified longevity annuity contract as a way to get that life deeply deferred longevity insurance protection for late in life expenses. And it's less costly to build an income floor late in life because you've got a long time horizon before that. And and you just, uh, the possibility of not living that long as well. So it reduces the cost. And then the other option is actually just the option value of waiting. There has been some research about, you don't have to buy the annuity, but you keep it in mind as a possibility. And, And so you just wait as long as possible, but it's always in the background that if markets were to suddenly tank or something, you have some sort of threshold that would trigger, okay, I better lock this income in. So it's, I've got the idea of purchasing an annuity. I'm not actually going to do it, but I am going to monitor the situation. And if, if things change, I, I may look into actually locking that in. And I think those are four general ways to, to reconcile or to find some sort of compromise between total return and income protection. Okay, wait, I'm writing this down. Uh, I'm just trying to catch up. Uh, can you repeat what you said after QLAC? Just so I can... <laughs> no, 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 no. We can, we can always hit the back button on the podcast. A nice That's all right. high school five-paragraph <laughs> essay answer to <laughs> No, I, I think you did great. You, you've got... You're very good because I obviously... No, but the reality is I don't have this kind of... Uh, you're, you're speaking quite often, right? And it comes across because you're very just to the point where... I'm always worried about rambling on a little bit. No, you did great. Uh, then you, keep that. Keep in mind the QLAC because I think there's something here when it comes to the next question as, as well. Just a little bit, or at least in my head. Potential episode, it, at least. There was. I know it's. Yeah, there's yeah. QLAC somewhere on our. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm coming at it from here. Where, yeah, you're right. There's another one, but this is more an indirect one. It's just you sparked it when you set it up when you were answering this that one. But here's a question. Many estimate that a couple needs up to 300000 set aside in retirement for health care. I want you to chime in on a couple or each individual, just as an aside. Uh, is this in addition to buffer cash to make it to age 70 for claiming Social Security? So if I am six years from age 70, which is... 64, uh, does that mean I need six years of expenses set aside in cash plus the health care of 300K? If so, how should I invest? All Take right. it away, sure. Wade. Yeah, and, and this is really mixing two different things. So <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. they really go together. But yeah, we'll, we'll kind of break this down piece by piece. So first, talking about the estimate around $300,000 for a couple from age 65 to cover the lifetime healthcare expenses from that point forward for the average couple at age 65. Yes, that's an estimate you do see. There's a fidelity study that comes up with something like that. There's a a study from EBRI, the Employee Benefits Research Institute, and that is for a couple, average couple at age 65, what it's going to take to cover all healthcare related expenses. And this does not include long-term care. This is simply healthcare. So Medicare premiums, out-of-pocket costs, uh, non-covered health needs that, I mean, not covered by Medicare, all that adds up on average to about 300,000. But that's part of the annual budget. That's, I, it's not a $300,000 reserve for unexpected healthcare expenses. This is simply 
if I take as part of my budget, the Medicare premiums and everything else every year in retirement, it's going to ultimately, it's present value of those lifetime costs is about $300,000. So you don't really have to think about that differently than other parts of the budget. All your annual expenses, if you calculate the present value, you may come up with a bigger number than that. But that's simply, this is what yeah. we need to fund over time. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking some people read that those stats. And if you, I get it, right? You know, we're in that sort of headline sort of mentality. I'm, I'm just as guilty. And maybe when you see that, you think you always need to have that 300000 because eventually you may break a leg. Eventually, you know, there's this one event and you're saying, no, that's just the Medicare expenses taken to its present value. It's not necessary. Yeah, it's or general actually, healthcare expenses taken to its present value. Actually, it's estimating about eleven to $12,000 a year for the couple for healthcare expenses. And when you add that up over the lifetime, that's how you get the number. <laughs> there you are. Okay. The, the thing that I was going to say, and this is beyond, well, did you finish your point, Wade? Oh, yeah, wanna... I mean, that's the on the healthcare side. We still have the social security part, but uh, go ahead. Okay. Then let me do the healthcare one just to add this real quick. And because this is what I wanted to add. For those of you that are listening in and are like younger, I mean, something to start considering if you can't within your employer is an HSA plan, you know, from a healthcare standpoint. I don't know about you, Wade, for, but for me personally, I'm 51. I'm maxing mm -hmm. it out from the family. And I think this year the max went up. It's 8,300, 8, I think. I think I just did those elections. 8,300 for the year. And the reality is you can you can wait, you know, till you cash them in. But that goes in tax-free. You know, it, it really is tax-free on going in and going yes, out. So yeah. that's – there's nothing like that right now. And frankly, you can use receipts. I could technically keep my receipts mm -hmm. right now. And when I start using, I can offset it, you know, like 20 years later when I activate it, I can pretty much kind of like use the receipts now to be able to take money out of it. And to some extent, me personally, I'm doing that, seeing where I am when it becomes active. And, and then I, I can decide. But just FYI, that's something to really take advantage of because I don't know of any vehicle that that is as good from a from a tax efficiency standpoint. In fact, it's not tax efficient because there is right, no tax. It's tax deduction, kind of, tax deferral, kind of, and tax-free distributions <laughs> for eligible medical expenses. It's the triple whammy of Yeah, are, are you are you uh, maxing on our company plan uh -huh. with oh, yeah, the HSA? Yeah, of course. Or should I have asked that? Is that like considered no, <laughs> an HR or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, well yeah, but our our employer, there there only is a high deductible health plan option, so it's you don't even have a way to. You need a high deductible plan to use an HSA, but uh, we don't have any choice in the matter. But I would do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So FYI, that's you know for the, for those that are younger than you know for those that still have you know are accumulating are in the accumulation phase and they're thinking about what am I going to do about healthcare in the future because long term care policies are kind of tricky, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. HSA, you know, a, a heavy dose of that early and often. Are you up for the challenge? We've just opened registration for Retirement Researchers Retirement Income Challenge starting on Monday, March 4th at noon Eastern. During this free four-day challenge with Wade, Alex, and I, you'll get to take the RISA and discover how you approach retirement income. Run and analyze your own funded ratio to understand where you stand relative to your retirement goals. And if you put in the work, come out knowing how you can put yourself on a course to bridge that gap. We only have a limited number of seats in the challenge. So head over to resaprofile.com slash podcast to learn more and sign up today. Again, that's resaprofile.com slash podcast. See you in the challenge. Now, the Social Security part of the question. Wait, I'm sorry. I just wanted mm -hmm. to throw that piece in so, there. Well, and then the question was also about how do I invest each of these buckets? So just on the this 300000 of lifetime healthcare expenses, that's just part of your general. If you're counting that as essential spending, which you may be, you may want to cover it with reliable income sources, part of your Social Security, annuity, bond ladder, that sort of thing. 
uh, if your total return, yeah, especially if it's not a one-time three hundred thousand right, dollars, it's not because it's not it's not the spending shock or it's not the reserve. It's not a contingency. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it you is. Go. You're simply uh, if you're the average person. So it's not even accounting for contingencies. You may want a little extra for the unexpected, especially if you're using a Medicare Advantage plan or something that doesn't have as much like the uh, Medicare supplements that can cover more of those out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, you're saying it like it's no different than if you're you're going to spend one hundred fifty thousand on your electric bill in retirement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right? It's but the same. Like when you're seventy five, you're going to get a bill for one hundred and fifty thousand. It's it's one of those. Same idea. Yeah. Then the social security delay bridge is a different matter, uh, and that's where if you are delaying social security and you're already retired, it's okay to spend from your investments more aggressively while you're waiting for social security to begin. Because once social security begins, you have much lower distribution needs from your investments. However, if you're just drawing that from a portfolio, it does create more sequence risk because you have this high distribution rate in these early retirement years. So this idea of social security delay bridges is you carve out the missing social security benefits from your portfolio and create reliable income with them, like an eight-year bond ladder or an eight-year fixed annuity, not a lifetime income annuity, but just for eight fixed years or a term payment over eight years from a reverse mortgage, something that gives you reliable income so that you're not exposing that larger distribution completely to the uh, volatile investment portfolio. I think that really that's okay. that's the idea behind the social security delay bridge, and it is very much different than the the healthcare issue. Okay, so let me ask you the next question, Alex, because this is more your wheelhouse. Within the RISA framework, how does one make allocation decisions between growth versus value stocks, and among large, mid, or small cap stocks? It doesn't. Okay. All right. Next question. No. <laughs> no, no, no. No, actually, it doesn't. The, the, the RISA was meant to just determine what strategy is in play. That's it. Uh, and the strategy being total return, bond, la- you know, time segmentation, bu- which is bucketing, income protection, or risk wrap, right? That's all we could, we could do with that. Now, when it comes to, as a general matter, obviously, you'd have to, by default, want to be in the total return strategy to then, you know, further play that out. Uh, but uh, just as a general matter, uh, you can make the case that this is a risk preference, but not risk tolerance preference in the way you, you think about it. I mean, risk in the sense of, let me begin with this. The, we've said this before, but there is nothing wrong. In fact, you can make the case that the standard is just a general market portfolio because that's how the world chooses to allocate its assets, right? And so let's look at a global market index. And whatever it is, that's what it is, right? And so any deviation from that, what you're doing is you're making some sort of bet, okay? Now, you know, you, there's reasons behind why you're doing it, but at, at the end of the day, that that's what it is. And let's not try to couch it in any other terms because that's what it is. Now, there's reasons for deviating away from a total world market portfolio. The first one is you live in the United States, so do you want to reflect the same allocation as the global world economy? Probably not. You probably want to be a little more heavy in the U.S. because that's where you live, cash conversions, currencies, et cetera, et cetera. It's just one of those inflation. things, right? That's not to say you should adjust your expenses are linked to U.S. inflation. So, Yeah, exactly. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have international stocks. But the international stocks is is because – you just want a full sample size of potential returns as opposed to, I think Germany's going to kill it this year, so let me go all Deutschmark, you know, that, that kind of thing. No, that's not how we, we mean it. Now, you know, how should you decide between growth and value, large and mid and small? That's in the, you know, that's the whole investment theme that we haven't done yet. We did an arc on what not to do with investments, you know, that, that Bob was part of, but we didn't get into the now what phase of it. And so we realized that. But the quick and dirty, I mean, from from my vantage point is, let me just take large, mid and small real quick. You know, you could say you can take the the factor investing, right? That there's three factors that explain 95% of all stock market returns, right? Your decision between value and growth, small and large, momentum, etc. Right? 
Now, you've seen over time that there's been questioning, okay, is this a risk premium, is this not, et cetera? Let's just put that aside for right now, right? But even across large, mid, and small cap, I would say mid caps do not belong in a portfolio. Mid cap is if you have a total market portfolio, you're kind of tilting towards large. And then if you're exposed to small caps, you're obviously tilting towards small. Those are that, That's where you get return differences. You don't really get a lot of return differences. There's no premium, let me say, between mid and large. There's a premium between small and large, but not necessarily mid and large. And so if you have a portfolio that has, again, making this up, 50% exposure to large, 50% exposure to small, if you blend those together, you're kind of getting already mid-cap risk exposure. And so you kind of just further diffuse the portfolio unnecessarily by adding mid-cap. There's no greater expected return on the mid-cap side. And if you do large and small combined, you're kind of getting that that exposure anyway. So you're like doubling up. This goes back to, we've used this example when it comes to the RISA, but think about you're creating colors, right? Yellow, yellow is large cap, blue is small cap, green is kind of what you get when you combine those. And those, those same green, quote-unquote, risk exposures is what you would find in mid-cap. So me personally, forget mid-cap from the portfolio. I think that's a marketing piece where, hey, we can sell mid-cap funds now, that kind of thing. Unless there's some personal reason that I, I can't think of right now off the top of my head, I wouldn't necessarily do it. You're, you're talking about, though, risk tilting risk. towards mid-cap away from – because the total market portfolio includes mid-cap. Yeah. I'm talking about tilting. I'm talking about tilting. I'm not saying they shouldn't be in. What I'm saying is the risk profile, I wouldn't go out of my way to buy a mid-cap stock index if you already have large and small. I would play with those percentages as opposed to, oh, let me get, let me do a third, a third, a third. That's useless. You might as well, you know, just do 80% large cap, 20% small cap, you know, something like that. How would you tilt towards that? It's just relative to the degree that you feel those factors will be, those risk factors will have a premium over the long term. And the reality is the long term there is 20 years plus. You know, you can make the same argument with growth and value from that vantage point, although we don't necessarily tilt towards growth, although that would have been wrong for the last 10 plus years, you know, but the reality is the RISA is not designed to really help you distinguish, okay, this much, now that you're told return, this much to go to growth, this much to go to value, et cetera. It's really more, do you even want that strategy that is based on a market portfolio? All right. Now, wait, I would say this in your research, because this is retirement income. The main the main question between portfolio allocation when you're determining the optimal withdrawal rate, is it really the split between value and growth? Does that even matter? To me, the main question is just stock Mm -hmm. to bonds. I mean, that's going to be the driver. Everything else is just kind of icing is too cute, but it's just it's not the main driver because once you're in stocks, the difference between value and growth or size and this and that isn't as salient from from determining a safe withdrawal rate. But that's my view. Right. You've done research. What do you think? Well, yeah, I I agree. (laughs) It's stocks and bonds and Bill Binken did do the studies where he compared large cap U.S. stocks and small cap U.S. stocks and, and found historically, even though small cap stocks are much more volatile than large cap stocks, you could actually increase the, the safe withdrawal rate by having a disproportionate amount into small cap stocks as well. So there's certainly the option to, to do that sort of thing. But right, the RISA framework isn't designed to help you decide on these types of questions. It's really the bigger picture of how do I want to fund my core spending in retirement? Now, there is a role for an investment portfolio with all four retirement income styles. And that's where when you get to building that portfolio, the RISA is not necessarily informing the question around, well, is it growth or value or large, mid, small? Those are asset allocation related questions that go beyond the, what the reset was intended to provide. It's not, it, and it's asset allocation at the secondary mm-hmm. levels. Secondary, you know? right. <laughs> uh, the, other, the other thing, since we're getting on this, and this came up actually last week, one of my friends was asking me this, what are my thoughts on uh, equal weighted indices? And you're seeing this a lot in the news simply because the, fanta- you know, it used to be FANGs two years ago. And then half of them changed their name, right? And so Fang didn't work. And now they're called like the Magnificent Seven because NVIDIA snuck in and, and things like that. 
And so a lot of it is like, well, the Magnificent Seven has been performing like this versus an equal weighted index. And so these equal, this equally weighted indices are now becoming this hot thing as evidenced by like my friends are starting to ask me, which is the good one? This is not a Q&A, but it's come up. So I'm assuming this kind of question leads into it a little bit. Equal weighted indices are silly. They're very inefficient. It was a paper done a few years ago, by a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago by Robert Arnott, who, you know, some folks consider him a good researcher. Other folks consider him sort of a hack that recycles things that other people have done to a large extent. And uh, an equal weighted index is, if you really think about it, it has a similar exposure to a small cap value type of index because you're effectively not giving equal weighting to every stock. And so the smaller stocks and the stocks that are value on a fundamental standpoint, they're cheaper. All of a sudden they have a greater representation. And so to me, again, you might as well just get the market portfolio and then get, get exposure to small cap stocks, small value stocks and small value stocks. And that's a much better way and more efficient way to do it than to buy this equal weighted market index. It's just this marketing thing that's happening right now. It's a very inefficient way to, to manage a fund, number one. And it, it you have difficulty then controlling exposure to the risk premiums that are out there. It, it was just, again, Arnott started this and it's something was a marketing play. He took, you know, we have Bob here all the time, but he effectively took Bob's dad's research, Ken Fr- Fama and French, and recycled it as his own, as in the in the in the way of, hey, here's an equal weighted market cap strategy. That's not the way you want to do it. Just FYI, if you know if you're thinking about splitting, and sometimes you throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm just going to get an equal weighted index because that's the thing. Frankly, if if that's the case, you're probably doing that because of this magnificent seven thing, and I want something to protect me in case they don't not perform. Blah blah blah. Well. That's why you have value indices. That's why you have small cap indices. That's why you have small value. That's why you have international, etc. Again, uh, I went off there a little bit, but it's been coming up among my friends. And so I'm just assuming, you know, listeners are, are hearing that as well. I know your friend Manny has really benefited from your advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is actually another Jean Pablo. <laughs> <laughs> A different friend. I always have trouble saying Jean. <laughs> it's like G I A N, and I, I don't know. <laughs> but okay, there we are. Wait, okay. that one. Let me go ahead and read the next question, too, because this is still more of an investment related one. And this one's longer. This is an essay. So here we go. (laughs) I'm looking to retire in about five years at about age 60. One year ago. This is important for later. Put a pin in that. One year. (laughs) One One year ago, I put together a test portfolio comprised of 20 high-yielding stocks or funds in eight or nine areas. REIT, uh, Mortgage Trust, BDC, pipelines, consumer goods, telecommunications, mining, dynamic income, and intermediate bonds. The current yield is 10.3%. I know that it has only been a year, but the principal value has never declined, and it is currently up 10% despite one holding losing 50% of value. I'm not concerned with legacy, nor keeping up with inflation. I anticipate heavier spending earlier in retirement, so if the real value of my withdrawals goes down, I'm okay with that. My question is, is there anything wrong with using this method for half of my non-social security retirement income? I was planning a SPIA for the other half. I appreciate any input you can give. Thank you. Uh, uh, we appreciate the questions, you know, and, and these are these things that we can be nice and be like, oh, that's a great strategy, but et cetera, et cetera. So with respect here, and and I mean the sincerity, but I'm I'm just going to cut to the chase because it's just easier that way. This is not a good strategy. It just isn't. Uh, A couple of reasons why. Uh, The first one is you're extremely concentrated. It's not worth the risk. The second one is, and forget the whole book of the dividend darlings or whatever the hell the the thing is called. That's that's silliness. Uh, So there's a huge concentration. The other piece is that you end up searching for yield at the expense of a properly diversified portfolio, right? You're, you're pointing out here that your yield is 10.3. So what? 
you know, who cares about the yield is 10.3 if your your principal went down 80%. And I know it's been a year, but it's only been a year, as you said, well, right? Just, that doesn't... Also, because the S&P 500 was up 24% last year. Yeah, there you go. Great point. Great point. I didn't even think about that angle. You're always better off. And I mean, always. <laughs> we don't speak in absolutes here. <laughs> but you're better off in a market-driven portfolio. And then you just take a distribution from that portfolio and you create your own yield. I think this idea of yields from stocks, look, a company has decisions to make at the end of the year. They can take the money, reinvest it in research projects. They can hand it out. They can hand it back to their investors if they don't have anything to do with it. If they don't have anything that they can put it in that yields a higher net present value, or they can effectively buy back shares with the extra cash, right? Just because someone decides to do dividends versus something else doesn't make it any better. I think as of this recording, Facebook way just announced a dividend, right? That doesn't necessarily think, oh, I want to get it because I'm retired and I'm going to take this stock and get the yield. That's like really old thinking, like 1950s railroad stock kind of thinking. The reality is get the market portfolio. It's diversified and take a withdrawal from it if that's what you're going to do and create your own dividend effectively. There's tax reasons for it. There's specificity of your own situation, why you want to do it, et cetera. There's nothing magical about dividend stocks. I I, I, I don't know why CNBC publishes these things all the time or you see commercials just specifically for dividend investing. That's kind of, not kind of, that is an outdated way of developing retirement income. Somebody could be listening to me and saying, you're full of crap, but the reality is the numbers are the numbers. And do, doing it that way is very inefficient relative to just taking a distribution from a portfolio and not even talking about just the portfolio management best practices. That's the, I, There's no skirting around it, so I wanted to be very blunt in my answer. Wade, do you want to soften the language so we don't get hate mail or, no, or something? I, yeah. Don't disagree with you. I mean, you're really, you're moving away from the total market portfolio into a less diversified portfolio and... I think you briefly mentioned taxes, but that I would emphasize that as well, that when you're investing for income in this manner, it may be less tax efficient. You're generating more ordinary income from the portfolio through the dividends, through interest and so forth. And long-term capital gains get that preferential tax treatment. So that another benefit of that broadly diversified total return portfolio is the, the tax benefits as well. So I'm you're, you're taking more risk to do this sort of approach and can't really advocate for it. It's not one of the viable retirement income strategies that we list to talk about moving away from the market portfolio to invest specifically to generate income from the portfolio. But wait, they're dividend stocks. Those stocks are safe. <laughs> well, one of them did lose 50 No, I, honestly, <laughs> I, go ahead. Answer it. I, I think people will appreciate your... And be as, you know, off off the record, you, you have you know, a certain saltiness to you. <laughs> so what do you say to that? No, but wait, they're dividend stocks. Well, I mean, I'm, but that's they, the, you the know. point here. So this portfolio, I mean, I mean, things may be a little bit rounded here, but he's talking about the portfolio being up 20% for the year, whereas the S&P 500 was up 24%. You're just taking this sort of active risk uh, when you move away from the market portfolio and it's not clearly going to pay off in any manner so I, it's just, it's not my yeah, cup of okay. tea to, to do that. Sure. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. And that leads to the next one, which is really, what are your thoughts on closed-end funds to generate retirement income? Closed-end funds are also something of a bygone era. Uh, they, now, that was something that became interesting, not interesting, but in the, in the news during COVID because of all the SPACs that were coming out. And they were just kind of effectively closed-end funds, just calling them SPACs, if you will. The ones that This is where you start yield chasing. Right. The reason, first of all, it's a very illiquid market. And so it depends how much you're going to put into it, et cetera, et cetera. But if you see, there's not a lot of float out there and the like. In fact, FYI, this is how Carl Icahn made his made his bones when he started, Wade. 
I think they were called green mailers. They would buy closed-end funds that were selling at significantly less than their market value, yeah, than their NAV, and he would get them to break up, to break up, and he'd make a spread on the difference. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I did that over and over in, in the seventies, I, I believe. But effectively, closed-end fund is a, is a mutual fund that's sold on an NAV. But uh, it's a little different. It's a lot different than ETFs and things like that. And they focus on dividends because they're effectively trying to capture your attention with a dividend, right? The reality is they're thinly traded. They're usually active and they use leverage. The way they're able to to provide 4% dividend yields, 5% dividend yields, 10% dividend yields is there's leverage behind that. It's not. It's something you could you could easily do. I don't recommend it anyways, but that's something you could easily do. So there's no magic behind closed-end funds. I don't really think that, obviously, there could be a situation individually where that may make sense. Like, I'll give you one. There was a there was a, a closed-end fund called Cuba, wait, or Hertzfeld. It was called Hertzfeld Fund, and I think it was the ticker symbol was Cuba. And it was investing in companies that when uh, Cuba would be liberated would do well, you know, that kind of thing. I'm a long-term holder in that one. <laughs> no, no. But uh, no, the point is it, there's nothing there. They use a lot of leverage, and that's why you see these yields that are way out there. But they usually trade below NAV, and it's not something I would recommend as part of a, a normal portfolio. It's almost like a niche thing that, you know, unless you're going to be a Carl Icahn and you're going to identify the ones that are trading significantly less than NAV, and you're going to become an activist shareholder to get them to break up so you can make the, the VIG on the spread. I don't think that's you. I wouldn't bother with it. Wait. Okay. No, fair enough. <laughs> no additional comment. Again, this is not financial advice. This is <laughs> for educational purposes. This is for educational purposes. I'm educating you on what I would do. <laughs> Wait's educating you on what he would do. Uh, all right. Why don't you tackle this one? Do you have a suggestion on how to implement a reverse guide? Sorry. Do you have a suggestion on how to implement a reverse glide path for someone in early retirement, mid fifties? Well, let me just start and let you. I'm sorry. I would just do the opposite of a glide path, and that's how you do a reverse yeah. glide path. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, Wait. I think the the idea here is if you're retiring early, you're going to have a longer time horizon, so you're going to need to use a lower withdrawal rate than otherwise. Using a lower withdrawal rate is one of the mechanisms for managing sequence of returns risk, the reverse equity glide path. And just so the reverse glide path is you start retirement with a lower stock allocation and work your way back up to where you would have been versus having a higher stock allocation throughout retirement. But it's designed to help manage sequence of returns risk. Well, you're partly managing sequence of returns risk by using a lower withdrawal rate with an early retirement. Therefore, you may not need to like have as much of an impact with the, the the reverse equity glide path. I think if you're retiring early, you're not going to have as big of dip and, and whatever that. So in the when Michael Kitsis and I wrote the articles about the reverse equity glide path, we used a case study. Instead of being 60% stocks the whole time, you go down to 30% stocks and work your way back up to 60% stocks. That was not a recommendation or that was just a case study. But I think with an early retiree, you wouldn't even think about making that big of dip. If if it was 60 to 30, back to 60 was what you might have used as retiring in your 60s. Maybe it's going down to 45% stocks with that early retirement instead of going all the way down to 30% stocks. And then working your way back up more quickly as well, just because, again, it's you're managing sequence risk through the lower withdrawal rate, so you don't have to be as aggressive about staying with a lower stock allocation for longer in those early retirement years. I would I would even say this. I you can circle back this answer to the first question that was how do you blend how do you blend someone that's time segmentation and total return? The glide path could be a way to do it as well. Right. The uh, like a not replenishing bond ladder. You have a bond ladder yeah. for the start of retirement that you spend down and don't worry about replenishing and that gives you a rise in equity glide path as well which then would you would satisfy those two profiles to some extent. Okay. And Wade, you want to finish it off with one more? I'm going to read it. Yeah. Well, that next question, keep in mind, there's two questions mixed in and they're on completely different topics. So pause after the first part, <laughs> but yeah, we'll do that one All and right. we can wrap things up. All right, here we go. 
I remember when we started this podcast, you would tackle two questions at once. Now, <laughs> what if they're nah, related, nah, nah. but they're not related? <laughs> All right. I have to, you're, you're losing it. You're losing that edge, Wade. <laughs> right. I have taken the Risa, and I am very much in the middle of the four quadrants, but slightly inside the safety first square. How does this impact me? Well, why don't you answer that one? Because I'll be answering the second part of that question. Uh, I would say here is usually when you look at the RISA profile, the top right is total return and the bottom left is safety first. So if, if, if this person now you're is making the same mistake. You didn't let me finish. I was going to say safety first and commitment orientation, <laughs> hence income protection. You cut me off. Good, sir. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. I, you know, whatever. And so they're they're on a diagonal. And actually, people move on a diagonal like that. It really is people move on this diagonal. So it's not un... You're, you're kind of in a sweet spot where a lot of people would be anyways. All, what, what that is saying ultimately there is it affects you in terms of try to start considering maybe annuities as bond replacements, but probably not SPIAs, but, you know, an FIA or, or something like that that is not as draconian, let's say, as a, a SPIA would be from the standpoint of commitment orientation and maximizing mortality credits, get something that's a little more uh, malleable, if you will, that has more levers that you can pull on. And I would cons- I would strongly consider them for, you know, pieces of your bond replacement. That's, that's kind of how it, it would impact you in terms of as a starting point for thinking about what strategies would work. Wait. Yeah, I, I I think that's the way to go. Yeah, but you're right. Most people are going to be closer to the center because it's all like a bell curve distribution that yeah, goes exactly. in multiple directions. But yeah, you've got more room to compromise and to something that's tilting towards, I guess, when they say safety first. Again, we don't know. If, I assume they mean safety first and commitment orientation. But it, so you're going to be looking for those kinds of contractual protections. You may just not go overboard with how much you put into assets that give you those contractual protections. Okay. Question two. Last year, I purchased an immediate annuity with a portion of my IRA with Fidelity. The monthly payments are taxable income. I am 68. When the RMDs from my RA starts in five years, when I am 73, with those taxable payments from that annuity count towards my RMDs? I have seen conflicting information on this question, so I looked up the the relevant section in the Secure 2.0 Act, Section 201. Wow, very thorough. And it appears from the language that the payments will not count towards RMDs. Will now count towards RMD. Thank you, <laughs> But I have also read that this language only pertains to 401ks, not IRAs, and in other write-up sections is completely ignored. I am hoping you can weigh in on this. Thank you. Okay. So, yes. I, I feel like the kid in sixth grade that, you know, when you're reading books and you read certain <laughs> passages and they go, they go around robin through the classroom. Yeah, I wouldn't have interrupted you, except that it completely changed the meaning to something now to yeah, not. Yeah, no, no, no. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> It's funny, when you read it, you kind of are like, you know, it's 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 weird. Bob's good at that. <laughs> okay, but yes, the, so the kind of, what the question's asking is, you own an annuity, uh, an immediate annuity, a SPIA, inside of a, in this case, an IRA. So inside of a tax-deferred account, how do our RMDs relate to that? So let's walk through that process. So the Secure Act 2.0 made some improvements there, and it's not the Section 201. Section 201 is about making it easier to purchase different types of annuities in, inside qualified retirement plans and IRAs, with both qualified plans and IRAs, 401ks and IRAs. Uh, you can now purchase more types of annuities. So that's not what's impacting this individual. I, I think really this is a question about Section 204 of Secure Act 2.0, uh, which so before Secure Act 2.0, if you buy an immediate annuity inside of a, and, and to answer this part of the question, my understanding is it's just any sort of tax-preferred retirement account. So it applies to both 401ks and IRAs. I've never really seen anything that said it was only for 401ks and not for IRAs. But the old rule was 
you kind of separate your account into the annuity part and the remaining investment part. And you can't mix the two for RMDs. That any money coming out of the immediate annuity counted as RMDs for the annuity. But if that amount was more than the RMDs would have been on the underlying premium or the present value of its payments, you couldn't apply any to the other part of the account. So it could actually, buying a SPIA inside of a retirement plan could penalize people because it forces them to take out more income. Secure Act 2.0 fixed that. With Secure Act 2.0, you look at the present value that the annuity is worth. You calculate the RMD on that. If the annuity is kicking off more income than what that RMD would be, which it probably will in many cases, at least in the early retirement years, or I'm sorry, especially in the early retirement. No, I mean, generally you can expect the annuity to kick off more than the RMD would be. Leave it there. Uh, You can apply the excess to other RMDs. So it's an improvement. It's something that helps retirees. So you should be in good shape with that. And again, I've never really seen anything that limited that to only qualified retirement plans. I do believe it applies to IRAs as well. The language I read in, in Section 204 just said tax-preferred retirement accounts. An IRA is a tax-preferred retirement account, so I don't see why they wouldn't be included as an eligible place to do this. <laughs> it could have been the headline of the article just you know, happened to pull out 401k as opposed to saying qualified accounts or something like that. But I digress. Okay. Wade, what do you think, man? Yeah. We good? Yeah, we had a longer episode to make up for that. Our, our last week's episode was pretty short. So here we go. <laughs> it was high quality, Onward high quality last week. Yes. <laughs> All right, man. All right. We'll catch, we'll catch everyone on the flip side. We got another Q&A to, to handle on safe withdrawal rates and annuities. It doesn't get any better than this, right? That's right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you All next right, time everyone. on Retire With Style. Bye now. Wade and Alex are both principals of McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 